Half-Price Horror. Hello, and welcome to Half-Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half-Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at your local Half-Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Jacob's Wife from 2021. Written by Kathy Charles, Mark Steensland, and Travis Stevens. Directed by Travis Stevens. Stevens is perhaps better known as a producer than a director, having made movies like We Are Still Here, Starry Eyes, and Hodorowsky's Dune. But this isn't his first feature directorial credit. He also did 2019's Girl on the Third Floor, which shares a few cast members with this film. Speaking of the cast, Jacob's Wife stars Barbara Crampton as Anne Fedder and Larry Fessenden as her husband, Jacob. Crampton is a horror icon of the 80s, thanks to memorable roles in Reanimator, From Beyond, and Puppet Master, but she said that sometime after Castle Freak in 1995, she stopped getting calls for the kind of young ingenue roles she specialized in. She spent some time working on soap operas like Young and the Restless, Bold and the Beautiful, and Guiding Light, before Adam Wingard, who grew up on her horror movies, cast her as Aubrey in Your Next in 2011. It seemed like the floodgates opened up from there, and she's had an amazing renaissance with films like The Lords of Salem, We Are Still Here, Road Games, Beyond the Gates, Blood Brothers, Little Sister, Replace, The Last Survivors, Death House, Dead Knight, Sacrifice, Superhost, and the upcoming Snow Valley. At this point, she's averaging more than a movie a year and shows no signs of slowing down. And Fessenden, although his career kicked into gear a little later, has also got some major horror roles under his belt, like Session 9, I Sell the Dead, You're Next, We Are Still Here, The Dead Don't Die, and Southbound, where he plays the DJ whose voice ties the anthology segments together. Basically, they're a very natural fit for a movie like this. Bonnie Ahrens plays, and this is technically already a bit of a spoiler, the Master. Not the Doctor Who Master. Different Master. Also not the Buffy the Vampire Slayer Master. Different Master. At least as far as we know. She's a well-known character actor who is Baroness Joy von Trocken in The Princess Diaries and the bum in Mulholland Drive, but her most recognizable role is almost certainly The Nun in The Conjuring Universe, which includes, of course, the movies The Nun and The Nun 2. Naisha Bell has a smaller but very memorable role as Amelia. As you might expect from someone who's still in her 20s, she doesn't have a lot of credits, but I certainly hope this film will earn her some attention from casting directors. The same can also be said of Omar Salazar, who plays Oscar, and Angelie Simone, who plays Ellie here credited as Angeli Denizard. Jacob's brother Bob and sister-in-law Carol are played by Mark Kelly and Sarah Lind, respectively. Lind was in Wolf Cop and was the titular Molly Hartley in The Exorcism of Molly Hartley, while Kelly has had a number of supporting roles on film and television, even though none of them have necessarily been signature for him. That happens a lot with character actors you're brought in, just to do, you know, a few lines of here, uh, maybe a day or two there. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're bad at what you do. Again, these are people who've been working steadily for years in Hollywood, something that's not easy to do, just that they haven't had a role that defines them or that's immediately associated with them. 
And rounding out the cast, we have Robert Rustler as Tom Lowe. He's another actor who's been working for decades, starting with parts like AJ in Vamp and Ron Grady in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and continuing with TV work like his role as Warren Keffer in Babylon 5. J. Devon Johnson as Sheriff Mike Hess. He seems to specialize in authority figures with roles in Army Wives, Den of Thieves, the rebooted MacGyver, and Nancy Drew in The Hidden Staircase as either a cop or a soldier. C.M. Punk as Deputy Colton, almost certainly better known for his career as a professional wrestler, but he's had a few parts under his wrestling moniker and his legal name Phil Brooks, which is how he's credited here. Ned Youssef as Nabid Alamin. Much of his role here was sadly cut, but he's probably most recognizable as Gandhi in Bill and Ted Face the Music. And Giovanni Cruz as Mariana Alamin. She's also a steadily working actor like Youssef, and she was also mostly cut from this film. It's sad because those cutscenes really do establish them as characters and give some depth and resonance to someone who's otherwise just victim 39 in a movie like this. The film opens with a lingering shot of a church at sunset, a shot with a haunting lack of habitation. You can see lights in the windows, but somehow that only makes the empty parking lot with cracked asphalt and the presence of a large rat in the foreground seem even more ominous. This is a movie about slow, subtle, almost accidental abandonment of something that once held meaning, and the establishing shot gives an immediate and visceral sense of that. After Crampton and Fessenden's names, we get the title card, Jacob's Wife. And I always feel like you need to pay extra attention when a title is possessive because it's establishing a relationship between the protagonist and an external force almost immediately. Rosemary's Baby, for example, is about someone who's being deprived of agency by her role as a mother. Jennifer's Body is about someone who is seen not as a person, but as an object of desire. And here, Jacob's wife is about a woman who's being seen by an entire community as an appendage to her more socially significant husband. We are being encouraged to recognize that tension and that dynamic before we even see Anne or Jacob, and to frame it as central to the film. Oh yes, and it's also very reminiscent of Salem's Lot, which was another story about vampires parasitizing a declining small town and gradually draining it of its remaining vitality, and which also, at least in its most memorable adaptation, featured a master vampire who resembled Max Schreck's appearance as Orlok in Nosferatu. That's another thing the filmmakers want you to be thinking about, although here I think it's for very different reasons, as we'll get into as we go forward. We see through a series of brief shots that most of the inside of the church is as empty as the outside, uh, when we finally do see the chapel where Jacob Fetter is giving a sermon on how to be a loving husband, there's probably less than 30 people there all told in a space designed to hold 10 times that. Speaking of that sermon, it's always fun when a story has an opportunity to give speeches that are openly and unabashedly about the subtext in a naturalistic way, and this is a perfect example. Jacob describes the importance of love and devotion in a marriage from the husband to the wife, but it's telling that he describes it as a form of self-love as well. He who loves his wife loves himself, he says. And although that sounds superficially compassionate, cloaked in the rhetoric of actualization and therapy that has bled back and forth between secular self-help books and religious conversation over the last 30 to 40 years, 
It's basically an egotistical view of the wife in a marriage as an extension of the husband's own identity and not a person in their own right. This is not a movie that's going to be subtle about exploring those themes, but that's kind of the nice thing about horror. It doesn't always have to be subtle. When you're dealing with big, brash, larger-than-life symbols of evil, you can be kind of operatic in your expression of your central concepts, and it doesn't seem forced or didactic. The vampire represents the insidious problems creeping into a marriage, yes, but it also represents a freaking vampire. Anne is clearly running through her life on autopilot. She tunes out most of the sermon, and afterwards she spends a lot of her time standing dutifully next to her husband while he chats with the congregation. This includes Bob and Carol. Oddly, Carol talks about going to find a hair of the dog, which is one of my problems with this movie. Not that people drink, but that the interior and exterior shots don't always match the chronology as established in the dialogue. Hair of the dog is usually an expression people use to describe a small amount of alcohol as a painkiller in the morning to cure a hangover, but this scene is clearly taking place in the late afternoon. And that itself is a bit odd since it's a church service, but many churches do have a Saturday afternoon mass for people who work Sunday morning. But why is Carol still nursing a hangover at sunset? We don't get an answer, unfortunately, but we do get a young black woman named Amelia who talks about her mother's alcohol addiction as she visits with Jacob and Anne. He offers to stop by and visit, and between that and Amelia's shyly flirtatious mention of wanting a husband someday who will love her the way Jacob described in his sermon, there's a subliminal sense here that she may have a crush on him, and he may be encouraging it in an I'd-never-act-on-it-but-it-is-flattering-you-have-to-admit sort of way. Not that that's going to be relevant later when Amelia becomes a vampire or anything. Uh, spoilers. But not big spoilers, because we follow Amelia on her long walk home through a very small town without any buildings bigger than the dome of City Hall, and a number of shops on Main Street that look family-owned and operated. It's the kind of place that is dying off slowly in America. Most of those family-owned shops are taken over by a Walmart ten miles down the road. The mill's been shut down for ages, as we'll soon see, and without a big central employer to provide incomes, people have drifted away to where the work is, leaving behind only the people who won't go or the people who can't. It looks like Amelia is one of the people who can't, because she winds up in a slightly shabby development on the edge of town, and she doesn't have any way to get there besides on foot. And as you might have guessed, someone whispers her name in the darkness, then rises up behind her and grabs her throat as we cut away. To Anne, massaging beauty cream into her own face and neck in a very nicely framed match cut. Uh, a match cut, in case you're not familiar with the term, is where two elements of two disparate scenes are matched together on the screen, so that when you cut from one to the other, it immediately appears seamless. She moves from her beauty routine to exercising, gardening, and cooking, and naturally we don't see her husband there for any of it. It's clear that although they occupy the same home, they don't really occupy the same life anymore. She's taking care of the duties of the household, and we don't need to see it to know that Jacob simply assumes that this is her role in life, and it's never occurred to him to pitch in in any way, shape, or form. There's a deleted scene where she literally picks up his dirty clothes from where he tossed them next to the hamper and puts them in, which is an absolutely perfect microcosm of thankless domesticity. 
Her cooking is interrupted by a call from Sheriff Mike Hess, who says that Amelia has vanished, and we cut to an interview at the church between the couple and the officer. Well, I say the couple, but literally every time Anne opens her mouth, Jacob is talking over her, not just finishing her thoughts or, or her sentences, but speaking as though the question was asked to him and him alone, and not even noticing that she's spoken. It's a very nice scene that clearly establishes the couple's dynamic even as it advances the plot, and one of the things I'm very impressed by is how assertive Barbara Crampton is as an actor here. It would be a very easy choice to blend into the background in these early sequences, allowing herself to be framed as a mousy and timid woman who's already been ground down by her husband's casually patriarchal authoritarianism as a way of establishing a contrast with how she behaves later. But she constantly simmers with barely suppressed frustration that the men around her don't even notice. It's a really bravura performance that makes you feel the indignities of her husband's constant interruptions and indifference. That evening, Jacob and Anne have dinner with Bob and Carol, and the talk is full of speculation over where Amelia has gotten to. Everyone but Anne thinks she must have given up on her alcoholic mother and run off with a boyfriend, but Anne says good people don't just leave their families, in a way that makes it clear that she's not thinking about Amelia when she says it. It's really interesting to watch the other actors react when she talks. There's a strong sense that even in her own home, among her own extended family, she's someone who is seen and not heard. And it's not exactly like she's heard here, either, with Bob scoffing at her concerns and Jacob full of bland platitudes about faith and insisting, oh, Amelia will turn up. That night, Jacob's snoring keeps her up, and she finds herself staring at a mood board filled with exotic places and an article about Tom Lowe, a so-called bad boy of architecture. Don't get me wrong, I have no doubt that there are such things, but it's still kind of an adorable description. She hears a voice whispering her name, much like Amelia did, but when she looks around, there's nobody there. The next morning, we find out that Anne is working with the town's historical society to renovate the abandoned mill as a shopping complex, a project that's clearly been taking up a lot of her time and attention, and one that Jacob is casually contemptuous of. It's not even that he has a strong opinion, one that he wants to fight with her over, it's just that he dismisses her one outlet for creativity outside the home as, quote, gutting our town's history, unquote, and doesn't even notice how hurt and defensive Anne gets as a result. Both parties are keeping the conversation light and casual, not because it's not important, but because they don't know how to talk about important things anymore, if they ever did. As we'll find out, this is a 30-year marriage founded on the principle of being there when other people weren't. Anne mentions that Tom Lowe is going to be the architect on the renovations, and speaking of trying to pretend that things aren't important, the way that Larry Fessenden rustles the morning paper angrily and glares at her with a subtle set to his face before saying, You're all playing? As if he's trying and failing to make the discussion of Anne's teenage boyfriend into a joke is... It's, it's really very impressive at conveying a lot of information at once. And Crampton, who returns his question with a very forced-sounding dismissal, also layers the scene with tons of extra subtext. When we see her dressing up for her first meeting with Tom, putting on pearls and red lipstick, we know exactly what she's thinking. And we know what that Jacob knows, but doesn't want to admit even to himself that he knows. Tom and Anne catch up over drinks, and Tom confesses that he's surprised that Anne wound up marrying boring old Jacob instead of living her dreams. 
But she says that Jacob was there for her when her mother died, and he comforted her when she needed support. And, and there's a long unspoken part of that story elided with a pause and an unprompted insistence that she's happy, which isn't usually something happy people need to say. Basically, it is about, this is about support as a passive thing instead of an active thing. Jacob isn't looking to her and giving her support. He just happens to be there when she needs support. And he, his support is always passive. It is always an act of not being absent rather than being present. And I feel like that's a key difference. And it's one that the movie makes much of. But it'll, that's mostly for later. For now, Tom and Anne head out to take a look at the mill, and here's another of my little complaints about the movie. In the exterior shots, it's overcast and rainy, but when they go inside, the darkness is punctuated by big, dramatic beams of sunlight coming through the holes in the ceiling. It's kind of distracting and defeats the whole purpose of an establishing shot, because the exterior doesn't match the interior. Plus, to be honest, it draws attention to the fact that the film is a bit inconsistent about whether sunlight affects vampires. You'd think that the sunbeams were there for a vampire to avoid, or get caught in, or something meaningful to the plot, but they're really just atmosphere, and vampires only seem faintly annoyed by it. But we do know UV light affects them, because, well, spoilers. Inside, Tom confesses that he mainly took the job to see Anne again, and gives her a passionate kiss that she eagerly returns. But the mood is broken when they hear someone call her name, and they decide to take a further look around. They find a bunch of wooden crates reminiscent of the boxes used to transport Orlok in Nosferatu, and Tom sits on one and beckons her over to resume their makeout session. But then the crate rattles from within, and they open it just long enough to see rats scurrying around inside it. Pushing his luck just a little too far, Tom decides to investigate a second crate and is devoured by a mass of hungry rats just before someone swoops down from the ceiling and enfolds Anne in their cloak. That evening, Jacob is ineptly trying to fend for himself at dinner when Anne walks in. She's cold and distant, heading straight up the stairs to bed with barely a word, but when she goes into the bathroom and takes off her coat to reveal the massive bloodstains on her white shirt, we see that it's because she's been horrified and traumatized by the attack. This is one of the most intense moments of Crampton's performance, and she really goes for it with a very raw and unnerving portrayal of shock and dismay. The next morning, there's no breakfast waiting for Jacob. Anne is doing her exercises with an angry intensity, almost completely ignoring him and saying that she's not hungry when he brings up the topic of food. Fessenden has to be commended here. He has almost no dialogue in this scene, and certainly nothing with any emotional meat to it, but he makes a banquet out of the awkward pauses and significant looks from Jacob to his suddenly unpredictable wife. He doesn't need to say a word to convey to the audience that he suspects Anne slept with Tom Lowe, but that he's too frightened of what he might find out if he actually asks, so he's going to simply pretend that nothing is wrong in the hopes that given enough time, it'll come true. And then there's... it's barely even a scene. It's more of a moment. But I feel like I have to mention it because it so, plays so differently once you've seen the whole movie and understand the full context of it. After exercising, Anne crawls towards a mirror on her hands and knees, repeatedly croaking, Who are you? And what do you want? In a hoarse, creepy whisper. 
When I first watched it, I didn't really understand what was happening. I thought perhaps she had some sort of telepathic link to the vampire that turned her, and she was asking him who he was and what he wanted out of Anne. But in retrospect, the Master is making Anne look in a mirror. The Master is making Anne see herself and ask herself, Who are you? And what do you want? And Anne doesn't know. She clearly hasn't watched Babylon 5. I'm just saying. That afternoon, Jacob leaves the church only to find two teens, Ellie and Oscar, sitting on the hood of his car and smoking marijuana. They're clearly doing it just to get a rise out of him, but he simply plucks the joint out of Oscar's hands, dismisses the taunts about molesting altar boys, and drives away. To be honest, the scene is kind of perfunctory. It's mostly there to establish Oscar and Ellie's characters for later, and to give Jacob a reason to have weed on him for a later gag, although it does also kind of show that Jacob isn't a complete wimp when it comes to confrontation. He comes home to find the lights out and the window shades drawn, and Anne waiting for him in a lovely red dress with a noticeable scarf around her neck and a brand new hairstyle. She wants to go out for dinner. Even though it was her idea, however, she doesn't eat a bite of her food. She sits mostly in silence while Jacob chows down, staring at his neck and listening to his heartbeat, which she can hear from across the table, and responds enigmatically to his tentative attempts at conversation. The closest she comes to an appetite is a single, ominous sip of red wine. That evening, she smacks him in his sleep, and the next morning they come as close as they have in the movie, and, one suspects in their 30-year marriage, to a fight. She tells him that it was an accident, and he passive-aggressively snipes at her until she finally tells him to stop interrupting and listen for a change. Unsurprisingly, he has no idea how to take this new version of his wife, and he leaves for work rather than discussing the issue further. Anne throws out the breakfast she was cooking for him and goes to the grocery store instead, but nothing looks good to her except for the blood pooling in the packages of raw meat at the butcher's counter. She asks the butcher, played by Skeeta Jenkins, for as much blood as he'll give her, and drinks it straight from a pitcher in her living room to the tune of Concrete Blonde's Bloodletting the Vampire Song, as she rearranges the furniture one-handed. But the animal blood turns in her stomach after a little while, and she winds up vomiting it all onto the rug. I love that we don't even need to wonder why Jacob doesn't notice any of this. He probably hasn't paid any real attention to Anne in decades. Incidentally, the diegetic needle drop here with a complete song isn't typical of the music of this film, which is by Tara Bush and is really more like a John Carpenter score, all stark and chilly and synthetic. I haven't mentioned it much, but it really sets the tone very effectively, and in some ways it's almost a character in the movie. Jacob goes over to visit Bob and Carol, and it's not surprising that Bob's advice is full of toxic masculinity. If the problem is that Anne is acting funny after she met up with an old boyfriend, then the solution is to go find Tom Lowe and threaten him until he leaves town. And to do it quick, because Bob doesn't want stuff to be all weird at family dinner this week. Huh, imagine that. Patriarchal society is way more concerned with the appearance of comfortable domesticity than women's actual feelings. Who'd have thought it? Jacob must stay over there for quite some time, because we next see Anne by herself in the darkened bedroom after sundown, lying on the bed in her nightgown until she's called to the window by the presence of the master. Over an ominous synthesizer beat, Anne is compelled to move her body like a puppet, eventually touching herself in a manner that's clearly sexual before Jacob comes into the room and breaks the spell. He's clearly shocked by her behavior, and she has no answer for him. 
That Sunday at Mass, the sermon is all about faith in one's wife despite the uncertainty in the husband's ability to save her from sin. Again, I absolutely love how on the nose this is, and it makes even more sense here because Jacob is writing out all the things he can't bring himself to say to Anne. In fact, it's not even clear if she's at church. We see his speech juxtaposed with her working in the garden, digging up and eating the worms, and it's entirely possible that she claimed illness to get out of stepping into a building that might have, well, let's just say painful connotations for her now. Oh, and speaking of pain, we next see Anne at the dentist, where Dr. Maida, played by Monica Henry, is scraping dirt from her teeth and noticing a pair of new incisors coming in behind Anne's existing ones. She offers to make an appointment to check them out before setting up the UV brightening machine, which is ominously pressed right up against Anne's mouth in a scene that somehow manages to be unnerving in its potential for pain, even before we see smoke coming from her face. She knocks aside the lamp, revealing a charred area around her lips, and runs away in terror. Jacob, meanwhile, goes to the mill to see if he can catch Tom Lowe at work. He finds his car there and goes inside, but the only people he discovers are Oscar and Ellie. Clearly taken aback by their unexpected appearance, he stammers out an apology and stumbles over himself in his hurry to get away. Whatever courage he had when taking the joint away from Oscar, it's gone now. It's so pathetic that Oscar actually apologizes for frightening him, which gives his character a little depth, just in time for him to die horribly as Amelia drops down from the ceiling and pretty much just shreds his neck with her large, rat-like incisors. She is a changed woman now, and not just in the vampiric sense. She tells Jacob that she doesn't want God's love anymore. She's found a new savior, with a love that gives her strength instead of fear. And this is actually a common theme in horror movies, where the transformation into the monstrous is a form of liberation from the strictures and confines of authoritarian society, and often it functions as a form of social conservatism, independence and self-determination in a marginalized person like Amelia, who's at the locus of two distinct forms of oppression, is depicted as an evil that has to be fought and destroyed to restore the status quo. Now, Jacob's wife examines that idea from a number of angles over the course of the film, and I think it's very interesting that someone like Amelia, who has less to gain from playing by society's rules than a woman who benefits from white privilege, is quicker to give up on her old self than Anne is. It's especially true in light of her explicit framing of her physical change as an abandonment of religion, which is an instrument of social control in many communities, that often preaches patience and obedience more because it benefits the people speaking than the people listening. Amelia tells Jacob that her new master is with Anne now, and we briefly see a still-burned Anne in her darkened living room, haunted by some unseen presence. Jacob rises to his feet, thrusting out a Bible at Amelia, but it doesn't seem to do more than irritate her. She advances on him, delivering quite possibly the most unnerving threat in this or indeed any other horror movie. I'm gonna tongue-fuck a hole in your neck until I pee blood. Luckily, Ellie smashes her over the head from behind, and the two of them make a run for it. She decides to go to the cops, while Jacob goes home to see what's happening with his wife. I'll admit, I would much rather have followed Ellie to the cops for that scene than Jacob, but, you know... That's just me. 
Back at the Fetter house, neighbor Navid, whose other interactions with the couple were almost entirely cut, if you can find them, I really do think it's worth tracking down the deleted scenes, because Ned Youssef really does a great job of establishing his character as someone with a lot of charm and personality, and this death hits harder once you've seen those. Sees Anne through the window, flailing her body around strangely, and he goes inside to check on her, only to get his throat slit. She tears open the wound like his head is perforated, and Jacob comes home to find a dead neighbor, blood all over the kitchen floor, and Anne lapping it up like a thirsty dog. She looks up at him, her mouth now fully healed, and explains hastily that when she went to the mill and kissed Tom, he was then murdered and she was attacked by a vampire. Jacob fixates on exactly the wrong part of that sentence, but he nonetheless mops up the blood, probably the first time he's touched that mop in their entire marriage, and placates Sheriff Hess when he comes to ask about Ellie's report of battling vampires at the old mill. He then stakes Navid's reanimating body while the two of them talk about what happened to her, and wow. Let's just talk about this for a moment. Because in another example of the subtext is the text, he asks her why she didn't tell him about being assaulted right away. She says she felt too ashamed to tell him about it, and his actual fucking response is, as you should. I like to say that I'm examining hidden themes inside these horror movies, but sometimes it's just like digging for dirt. This is clearly a representation of a sexual assault, and Jason is clearly victim-blaming just like patriarchal figures always do, because it's easier to decide that the victim earned their suffering than it is to admit that the transactional structure of obedience to authority in exchange for protection is fundamentally flawed and broken. Anne has to have done something wrong, because if she didn't, then Jacob just completely failed her in the one job that she pays him to do with her constant housework and dutiful silence and meek, timid submission, and he can't accept that. And his solution is to resort to the same toxic masculinity. He announces that he's going to go kill the master and put Anne back the way she was, not considering whether or not that is going to happen, and not even noticing that her reaction makes it very obvious that she doesn't want to be the way she was anymore. But violence is the only way he can reassert his male authority, the only way he can repair the fragile masculinity that was injured by the master's claim on Jacob's possession. And so he clings to it even as Anne's anger threatens to bubble into retaliation. Because she's a vampire now. She does not have to put up with his crap. Jacob buries Navid in the garden in the backyard before consecrating the ground with holy water and a communion wafer. There's a neat sort of sizzling effect when he pours the holy water into the dirt that gives you a very clear indication that yes, that at least religion has some effect on these things. Then goes to the mill to kill the master. Anne invites herself along, making a stake from a random house's picket fence to use as a weapon, and refusing to simply wait in the car while Jacob asserts his phallic authority. Because, look, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, but a wooden stake isn't just a wooden stake. The two of them head inside, with her insisting that they need to do this as equals, and him saying, let's just get this over with, because he doesn't want to talk about anything that's going on involving real emotions, only to be attacked by Amelia. Jacob sprays her with holy water, which appears to restore her to herself, and she pleads to him for help while Anne insists that she's faking it. And again, this is where you can clearly see that there was something going on between Jacob and Amelia, some sort of a, a hint or a, a 
subliminal kind of emotional connection that makes it more than a little hypocritical that he was complaining about Anne's emotional affair. In any event, while he is hesitating, Anne stakes Amelia right through the back of the head. It's a brutal death. Beautifully done brutal death. Furious at being shown up by his wife, Jacob heads back to the car and tells Anne that he's done with her. If she likes this new life and this new master of hers so much, then she can just stay at the mill. She calls him out on this behavior, pointing out that he's never had to do a thing in his life for her except still be there when everyone else walked away. And now that things are actually hard and he has competition, he's just going to give up and decide that she's not worth it. And he responds by driving off without her. She hitches a ride home. Interestingly, in the deleted scenes, it's Navid's wife, Mariana, who picks her up, providing a very nice opportunity to show the human consequences of Anne's thirst. Again, I love the deleted scenes in this movie. They give so much extra weight to some of these things. But she doesn't know that the master has gotten there first. Because Jacob gets up to find Anne, obviously feeling guilty over his behavior. But it's soon obvious that the person he hears in the house isn't her. As he goes searching from room to room, a knife in his hand, something moves faster than the eye can follow to turn on lights and shift furniture, leaving him terrified and flailing around with the knife so dramatically that I honestly thought for a moment that the movie might end with him stabbing himself. But instead, he turns to find himself face to face with the master, and we rapidly cut away to darkness. Anne arrives home to find Jacob kneeling on the floor, his eyes clouded over, knife pressed lightly to his own neck. The master steps out of the shadows, and we get a good look for the first time at the pointed, rat-like features of the vampire lord. The master compels Jacob to cut himself, not deep, but enough to bring out Anne's frenzy for blood, and tells her that she needs to decide. Thrive or die. Meaning, of course, live on Jacob's blood, or anchor herself to his needs and wither away as a result. This time, at least, she chooses to make love to him instead of killing him. But there's nothing that can make her vampiric nature go away. Oscar's stolen joint helps, as well as loosening up their ability to talk to each other a little, but she needs blood. And at that exact moment, they get a call about parishioner Maddie, played by Kathy Newcomb, who hasn't been answering the phone and whose daughter has asked for a welfare check from the local minister. Assuming that this is more of the master's work, they go in with stakes in hand, but it turns out that Maddie just died an entirely natural death, and she has an entire body full of blood that would otherwise go to waste, right? They wrap her corpse up in the bedspread and carry her out, and there's an adorable scene where a little girl played by Armani Desiree won't stop watching them stash the body in the trunk of their car unless they tell her a swear word. Fuck off! Already know that one! But it's Mariana who sees them unload the body back at their house and calls the cops, who's the real trouble. One thing I'll admit I like about this is you see a lot of this kind of sub-sub-sub-genre of couples trying to deal with an unexpected supernatural transformation, where they turn out to have an unexpected gift for criminal murder and body disposal. I'm looking at you, Santa Clarita Diet. And it's kind of nice to see that, no, they're completely incompetent criminals, and they get caught almost immediately. Jacob is arrested as he drives back to the mill with a briefcase full of vampire hunting paraphernalia, while Bob and Carol come over with a tray of lasagna for family dinner and find Anne draining Maddie's blood into jugs. Looks like things got weird. 
They dial 911, diverting Sheriff Hass and Deputy Colton to the Fetter House with Jacob still in the back of their car to investigate as the night falls. Bob holds Anne at knife point, little realizing that the only thing stopping her from murdering him is her own finely honed patience with male bullshit. Carol can't bring herself to stay in the same room with them, which turns out to be a major mistake as the master arrives while she's pacing in the backyard and yeets her skyward with vampiric power. Noticing her disappearance, Anne tells Bob to make a run for it, but he instead forces, heavy air quotes there, her to go outside with him to look for her. They find Carol near the garden, speaking the master's words through a shredded throat and biting the head off of a rat before her body collapses to the ground. One of the things that's so effectively creepy and unnerving about this movie is the way that the master's powers are never clearly defined and seem almost to be unlimited. Telekinesis, mind control, flight, super speed, pretty much a full grab bag of anything you've ever seen in a vampire movie and a few more besides. It makes a threat seem genuinely terrifying and unstoppable. Oh, speaking of, Bob's knife turns out to be pretty useless when the master swoops down and bites him in the neck. Anne runs to the garden to grab a stake and finally shouts at the master, What do you want from me? And the master responds with a question that makes everything clear at last. Why do you always think in terms of what others want? Because despite using a male honorific, the master identifies as a woman. The makeup does a good job of conveying an androgynous appearance, but it's clear from the dialogue that she was AFAB, and AFAD for that matter, I suppose, aside female at death, and it's merely the effects of being vampiric for such a long time that have made her body look somewhat ambiguously appearanced. She tells Anne that she knows what it's like to have to make herself small to fit into the lives of mediocre men, and she sees the potential in Anne to become a master vampire like herself. All Anne needs to do is stop asking herself how to make others happy and start thinking about what she wants, and to drink the master's blood, which will finally give her control over her eternal thirst. But their conversation is interrupted by the police, who fire uselessly at the master even as she tells Anne to make a final decision. Be herself, or be forever Jacob's wife. As an aside, I know what this feels like as a writer on both sides of that decision, whether to actually say the title in the movie or whether to leave it out, but it always feels so weird as an audience member to hear a title nakedly declaimed in conversation. It's like that bit in The Simpsons, they realized they were no longer little girls. They were little women. It's just really strange to hear out loud like that. But in this case, it works. And, of course, in this case, Jacob doesn't intend to allow Anne that choice. He knows how she'll pick. He stakes the master from behind while she's preoccupied with Anne, sending gouts of black blood spurting from the vampire lord's chest. He calls her the devil and, and quotes scripture as he paints a cross onto the back of her head in her own blood, an obvious invocation of the ultimate in patriarchal authority, God himself. As the master dies, she cries out, This is just their nature. This is how they'll always be. And Anne knows she's right. The police leave way out of their depth, but they warn Jacob and Anne that whatever is going on has to end tonight. And so, as the sun rises, husband and wife sit together, stake in his hand, 
things in her mouth, discussing their future. She wants to make her own decisions, be a true equal in the marriage, and he wants to cure her so she won't feed on any more innocence. And as the two of them lean in, either to kiss each other or kill each other, the screen freezes on that moment of perfect ambiguity for a long minute as the credits roll. I'm not generally a fan of ambiguous endings, but I have to admit this is pretty much how this needs to end. And will I hang on to this movie? Yes, I think I will. I'm not 100% confident in its conflating of feminism and vampirism. I think there's always a risk of demonizing the oppressed when you decide to make monstrosity the tool of liberation, even if that's not what you're trying to say. And I almost might have preferred an ending where Jacob didn't stake the master. On the other hand, this is an ending that doesn't result in a restoration of the status quo. We don't simply get a purgative effect on the master's death, and, you know, it's good that Anne is no longer the person she was at the beginning. Plus, I like the performances, I like the production values, I like the music, I like the gore, there's wonderful special effects here, and I like movies that have something to say. And Jacob's wife definitely has something to say. And if you want to talk about feminist vampires, Bonnie Aaron's makeup, or about anything else that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter at at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash HalfPriceHorror, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere else this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, I've mentioned in the past that I like to put new movies onto the podcast as quickly as possible while people are still talking about them. And even though The Reckoning technically came out about a year ago, it only hit DVD back in April and it came to Shudder even more recently than that. So let's continue our feminist bent by talking about Neil Marshall, director of extremely feminist horror movie The Descent, and his tale of witches and witch hunts, The Reckoning. See you then.